So uh, if there was a title for this one, it would be Manifesting Jesus' Kingdom. Um, we did, you know, re actually receiving Jesus and, and uh, following Jesus, actually following Jesus. This is going to be Manifesting Jesus' Kingdom. And kind of a central thought, it comes from a verse towards the end of the chapter where Jesus says, but seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. The kingdom. The kingdom, ultimately, I believe, is the central theme and focus of this particular chapter. And uh, the idea is this, is that Jesus is teaching his disciples to live physically in this earth, but to have live in physically in this earth from a spiritual connection to God's kingdom. So, uh, and that is the thing is like living in this earth. We have, actually have to have a physical uh, world. I remember when I first became a Christian, my, my kind of desire, I kind of wish I could just live in a prayer closet for the rest of my life because you have this connection with Jesus. And then you have to go back into the actual world and face people and circumstances. And, and I just wanted to be with Jesus. But the reality is Jesus has called us to live physically in this earth from that place of spiritual connection that the things that we see and connect with in our relationship through the Spirit with Jesus actually begins to be put into place and manifested into this earth, that we would become what we are called to be witnesses. And so the first thing that I want to say before we even begin reading Luke 12, I just want to put us all into a common understanding that this thing that I'm talking about is not about something that we, if you can hear me, that we do the kingdom. In other words, this idea of like, well, the kingdom of God is, is this, so you ought not to do that. Well, if a person doesn't have a revelation of what the kingdom of God, they haven't seen with the eyes of their heart the kingdom of God, it's not going to bear any fruit to try to impose the standards of the kingdom on a person. But when, when, it, when a person sees something of the kingdom of God, they begin to want what they have seen. And it's the want that brings life to serving God. God is working in you to both to will and to do of his good pleasure, says Paul in Philippians. So quickly, three thoughts. The kingdom is inside the believer. This is not something that we're seeing the kingdom and so now we have to go do the kingdom. It is inside of us with the intention of it manifesting through us. Luke 17, 21 says, Nor will they say, Jesus says, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Another truth about the kingdom is that the Godhead of this kingdom, not just the kingdom itself, but the very Godhead of that kingdom is also inside of you. I love it. John 14, 17, Jesus said, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit dwelling with Jesus, and the Holy Spirit was with them in so much as they were with Jesus, who had the Holy Spirit upon him. He dwells with you and will be in you. In other words, Jesus is saying, you've experienced the Holy Spirit because you've experienced me. I'm going to leave, and I'm going to send him, and he'll be in you. The Godhead of this kingdom is inside of you. And then another third thought, the kingdom can be seen with the eyes of your heart, and walked in through spiritual rebirth. 
John 3, verse 3, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If that is true, if a person is born again, what do you suppose they can do? See the kingdom of God. Spiritual rebirth causes us to see, not with, the eye, not with these eyes, spiritualized. We're spiritually reborn. See the kingdom of God. We see it as we fellowship with the king of that kingdom. And, but not only that, John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Most of us interpret that as being like we go to heaven when we die. And that's true. But the reality is the moment you receive Jesus, heaven is in you. In that word for heaven, excuse me, for enter, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, metaphorically means entrance into any condition or state of things. In other words, if you aren't hearing me, the, being born again causes you to see it and then to also operate in it, to, to walk in the condition and state of things of that kingdom that you see that the world cannot see. Okay, so let's start with, um, there's five thoughts that we're going to kind of hit on as we work through Luke chapter 12, and let's just dive right into it. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people, notice that, multitude of people, the multitudes, the crowds, not the disciples, the crowds, when a multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another. How many of you would like that to happen in the church today? Yeah. The people of the multitudes, the non-believers coming in such droves that they're on top of each other, he began to say to who? His disciples. Not the multitudes. He said this to his disciples. And I want to just remind us that throughout the Gospels, we see this pattern of Jesus having a different ministry to the multitudes or those who were interested but not really following him and his disciples, people who had confessed him as Messiah, who saw who he was and chose to leave everything and follow him. He had a different ministry to both. To the multitudes, he proclaimed the kingdom. He said the kingdom of God is within reach. Repent. He proclaimed it and he demonstrated it. He healed the sick. He opened blind eyes. He cast out demons. To his disciples, he began to instruct them on how to live in this kingdom. So in this, in this first verse that we just saw here, we see that very thing happening. Multitudes of people, and he says to his disciples, a, a different group, and he's going to teach them. Now, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you don't have to say, you know, raise your hand. I'm a disciple. If you are a disciple of Jesus, I want to say in this chapter and in today, he's doing the same thing with you and me. He's still teaching us to walk in, in this earth, manifesting God's kingdom. Walk in the kingdom, but let it manifest through our body in the earth. For, he said, okay, if the rest of that verse. First of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Verse 2, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Our first point this morning of the kingdom of God is that in the kingdom, the fear of God displaces the fear of man. If I can just elaborate a tiny bit on what I mean by that, there is the kingdom of God is another reality, another realm 
In fact, that's what kingdom means, is king's domain, kingdom, king, the domain of the king, or the, the sphere in which the perfect will of the king is done. That is what the kingdom is. In that kingdom that is inside you and me, there is no fear of man. How many of you have ever experienced the fear of man, been concerned about man's opinions, been perhaps tempted to not obey Jesus because of what it might mean in terms of your reputation or people's perception of you? It's fear of man. It does not exist in the kingdom of God. Now remember, did I say you're supposed to do the kingdom of God? So if you've ever had the fear of man, you, you, not, you don't belong in the kingdom. No, it's, it's about, about renewing our mind and accepting and agreeing with the kingdom as we see it and allowing that to displace our natural sinful nature. In the kingdom of God, there is no fear of man or the, the, the fear of God displaces the fear of man. So let's read on. Luke uh, 12, verse 4. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. So Jesus tells us not to be afraid of those who kill the body. How many of you so far today have been afraid of somebody who could kill your body? Right? Now, I know it's, it's kind of a stupid question to ask in Detroit because that, like, in reality, some of us are afraid of people. Who, but generally speaking, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of us don't walk around being, oh, are they going to kill me? It's not something. So what's he talking about? Kill the body. He's talking, he's actually talking about, uh, he's not talking about muggers or serial killers. Although, you know, be cautious of them, just, just so you know. The context of this whole thing that we're reading about right here is, and I don't know if Bob got into it at the end of last week, Jesus giving a verbal lashing to Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees and the lawyers, the, the doctors of the law uh, with boldness. Uh, I mean, to the point that they wanted to rip his head off. It would have been so much easier to just appease them and to kind of have my disciples and we're also going to be good with the religious elite. He spoke unreservedly the truth to them about how they were wrong. That, that's what we're talking about. They, they could have killed him. And what did actually happen in the end of Jesus' mortal life or earthly life? They did kill him. He says, don't be afraid of, of people. You're probably not going to be killed by somebody. What he's talking about is don't be afraid of what man can do to you if you follow the kingdom. That's what we're getting at here. Jesus teaches us to give witness in this life, just like he had just done so with those Pharisees and scribes in the end of chapter 11, to give witness in this life despite the potential cost. Why? Knowing God is bigger. That is not just a nice little platitude. There is a God that you may not see with your eyes who is way more powerful than any force that can come against us in this earth. And so let's read on Luke uh, verse 5, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Now, what are we talking about? All of a sudden, we're talking about sparrows and these little birds that are worth like a tiny bit of money. And he says, not one of them is forgotten before God. The idea being that you are remembered before God, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. 
Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men. Again, what is Jesus teaching us? To give witness in this life. Whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now when they, brought, when they bring you into the synagogues and magistrates and authorities... Do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. I, I want to hit pause there and just say, as you and I open up our mouth and confess Jesus in the way that Jesus is instructing us to, we're probably in America, at least in, as, as it stands today, we're probably not going to be brought before some kind of authority. Probably. I mean, you know, not yet. Not, not yet. Right. We don't know, but, but that's not a reality for you and me. So we've got it. We can't just cast this aside and say, oh, that only applies to 2000 years ago in the Roman empire. What does that, what does that mean for, for Chris today, for Paul today? Well, it means that um, we may not be brought before authorities, but there are consequences that we might face for speaking of Jesus socially. There could be rejection. There could be ridicule. There could be some form, of, some form of persecution, even if we're not answering to some authority. So the, the reality is that Jesus is teaching us here is that the kingdom in you wants to testify of the king through you to the earth. The kingdom inside of you is wanting to speak through your tongue, through your vocal cords, of its reality into the earth, and that doing so could have consequence. It's risky on this earth. But Jesus is saying, are you not more valuable than a sparrow? In other words, God, in the eternal sense, is going to take care of your soul. And in the end, that's all that really matters. Now, if you're not a believer in Jesus, that is not an encouraging thought. Like, okay, but what, you know, I want God to take care of me in this world. Well, what Jesus is kind of implying is, your eternal reality is more important than your earthly security, and the believer lives from that standpoint. The perspective of eternity. We may lose it all in this world. God will take care of us in this world, but there could be great sacrifice. Why? Because when you chose to follow Jesus, you're following somebody who went to a cross. That's the path of your leader. <laughs> but it doesn't end with the cross, right? There's resurrection as a result of the cross, but we still live like Jesus lived because he's the one that's living in us. Verse 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Again, the idea is that we don't do the kingdom. We're not trying to see it and then go back and do it. Jesus is saying that there's a spirit inside of you who will teach you in that moment. This kingdom is in you. And you don't have to rely anymore on your own devices and on your own ability or understanding. In fact, if you're trying to walk out the kingdom of God, let me prophesy over your life. You are not going to understand what you're doing. <laughs> it's going it's, to, and yet, and yet something in you kind of does. There's that familiar voice of your father that encourages you. And so what, what he's saying is 
You have a kingdom inside of you. And when you're in that place and you need to speak, don't be trying to think about what you're going to do and say. The, the Holy Spirit is going to show you what you should say in that moment. He's teaching us to have a God is with me. Or I said that wrong, actually. God is in me. Consciousness in all social contexts. I was having a coffee with a young man that I referenced earlier this morning, and he started to share some things with me. And I thought, whoa, okay. But in that moment, there was something of the Spirit of God inside of me, and I remember, don't, don't try to think, don't try to understand, don't try to react, it just there's the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And uh, it became quite a wonderful moment of fellowship and connection and it, where the Lord was in, in our midst. God is in me, consciousness in all social contexts. By the way, I'm not talking, you know, uh, you know as, as uh, <laughs> any of you go into your normal, you know, Sharon perhaps as a, you know, go with the, the owners of pets in her veterinarian office. She doesn't have to like, speak about Jesus to every person, right? And neither do you. It's, you know, you, as a nurse, as an administrator, you know, it's possible to do administrative work without saying the name of Jesus. Right. In fact, if you do, you're probably a little, I don't know if that's the kingdom in you. That's probably religion on you, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, but it's that, it's that God, energy of the God inside of you and, and living in divine flow and being sensitive to him with you, which, which yeah. Let's just move on. I don't want to get off subject. Verse 13, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Notice he was from the crowd. This is not a believer. And he said to the man, Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? I don't want to get deep into that, but I just want to point out, isn't it interesting that Jesus, in this request of his brother to divide the inheritance, to work out something that would, in his mind, be the righteous way, and he wanted to get involved in this situation between two brothers to make sure that the brother did righteousness, and Jesus denies that anyone has made him an arbitrator in between human affairs. That is interesting. Because Jesus is implying, he's saying without saying it directly, that he does not sovereignly, he does not sovereignly, let me say how I actually read it, he doesn't want to sovereignly deal with the earth affairs, but to dwell in and through people. He wants you to deal righteously with your brother. And he wants you to follow him in you and so that you do righteousness, not to get other people to do righteousness out there. The church does get that wrong more than we would like to admit or even see sometimes. Uh, so the second point this morning is that in the kingdom, provision comes with the will of the king. Verse 15, And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. I wouldn't mind that. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? And I might ask some of you, you know, all of us have probably been in financial mo moments of financial tightness, but we oftentimes look to God in those moments. You know, it's like foxhole religion. But what do we do in moments of success? What do we do when we have abundance? 
What do we do when we have more than enough? What did this man do? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater barns. And there, will, there I'll be able to store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. I got to be honest with you. I can see that. I can, I, can, I can see that future like this rich man did. That is something I can behold and wrap my heart around if, if I wasn't following Jesus. Yeah. Soul, you have worked hard with real estate. Why don't you put some pajama pants on? Lie on that couch, not sit, lie. Get some nachos with some Rotel. Watch some TV and chill. Why don't we do that for a week? And let the world solve its problems. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang out. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. You eat, drink, be merry. You've got plenty. You don't need to worry about a thing. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Can I make a point here? He didn't choose to do anything lascivious or sinful. It's not like he had some kind of like an orgy or something like that or some horrible thing. He's talking about relaxing. Not really like doing any work for a while. Let's just kind of chill. Let's go on a big vacation, right? It's not sinful. Your soul will be required of you. And who, then whose will those things which you have, uh, things which, geez, will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This idea of being rich towards God, what does that actually mean? Rich towards God? This rich man clearly was not rich towards God, whatever that may have meant according to Jesus. He wasn't rich towards God. He was rich in this earth. He was rich with his own belongings. What is rich towards God? Well, I mean, it, it would obviously mean that you have invested greatly in the kingdom. And this man, when he had an abundance of things, it wasn't that he went off and did some sinful thing. It's that he didn't invest his heart. He didn't seek the kingdom. He didn't seek what he's supposed to do. And the reality is, it's not just when we're in the financial pressures or the hard things of life that we actually bend our knee and start to seek Jesus because we need his help. We seek him in all times and everything, whether we're abased or abound, all of it is in the context of our laying down our lives for the kingdom and living out what the kingdom wants to do with it from within. Remember, this is kingdom within. Kingdom wanting to manifest through us. And so, uh, this life is not a time to indulge, but to serve Jesus. And, the, and what Jesus is teaching us here is that the kingdom within you is always facing out. Now, how many of you know sometimes you do need to take a break and relax and take a load off and refresh and reconnect with, with, with the Lord and with, with yourself and with your family, those kinds of things? That's important. But you don't live for that. We don't live for the weekend and we don't live for the holiday. We live now. Kingdom of God in me. And I have moments where I tuck away to recharge, to go back. That's, where I, that's what I live for. And it ultimately all ends up being serving and facing outward and giving because the kingdom of God in you is always going to be serving. So the third point, in the kingdom, there is no worry but confident expectation. I want to say to us this morning, despite how deeply ingrained 
patterns of worry and anxiety may be in our heart and in our mind, there is another part of us that is a very real part of us that does not have any worry in it. It is free. The kingdom of heaven is free of worry. In the kingdom of God, there is no worry, but instead, confident expectation. You'll read with me in verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are they, are you than the birds? And which of you, listen to this, by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? You and I don't measure things in cubits. He's saying, how, how many of you can get taller by worrying? What Jesus is saying here is that worrying doesn't help, so stop doing it. Do you know that worrying is something that you need to repent of? And you know repent does not mean so that you can be saved. I'm not talking about repenting so that because you're such a horrible, you know, and so that you can regain your salvation. I'm, to repent means to change your mind, to turn from this and to rather go this way. If you find yourself worrying, you need to repent because that, there is no worry in the kingdom of God that is within you. He, Jesus here is saying, do not worry. This isn't me. Don't worry. You have the ability to live in this life without worry. I remember uh, when Peter was born. He had just been born. I've told this story before, but it's been a few years, so some of you may have forgotten it and others may have never heard it. Uh, I, was, I was a loan officer, a mortgage financer, and Peter had just been born, and um, I'm now responsible not only for me and Minda, uh, although you were working at the same time as well, I think, or maybe, maybe you weren't because you were... Okay, so I was definitely the primary you know, provider at that time, and, and now I've got a child, and there's a whole new sphere. And so in, in, in this one particular day, I've got, it, it was like, I, we were barely getting by financially, and I was very much counting on this one deal to close by the end of the week so that I could make ends meet, and that deal fell through. And I'm like, I, how am I gonna buy diapers? You know, like I'm going through in my mind, like all of the things that are about to happen. And in my mind, it builds up to all these scenarios of things that I'm not going to be able to take care of. And I am like, I am peeling myself off the floor. Remember, have you ever been in one of those moments where you're like at an office or something like that? And there are other people and they're on the phone, they're talking to each other and they're doing stuff. And you feel like you are like in this, your physical body is there, but you're kind of in hell, you know, rather than heaven. It's like hell. And, and you, I mean, you feel so discouraged and like, you can't even look anyone in the eye. I mean, I was like so worried and I went into the boardroom and, uh, and I knew it wasn't in use. So I just locked it and I just went around the boardroom table and I just prayed. And I remember that, that I repented of worrying and that Philippian scripture, do, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart and rule your mind in Christ Jesus. And I was just saying that and I began to confess it and I was speaking it. Lord, I'm not going to be anxious. I'm going to be anxious for nothing. And I, but you said to be, let our request be made known to you with thanksgiving. And I remember the awkwardness of 
really trying to be thankful when, when, as I was making my request, like being thankful, like how can I be just thank, I, I get, what, is, what does that mean? I guess I, I need to be thankful for what I already do have, thankful for what he's done in the past, thankful for the things he's done, and thankful that I can expect him to be with me into the future. And I started to thank him, and with it, a little confidence started to arise. I started to think maybe God's with me. Don't have a clue how circumstances are going to change or what's going to happen, but maybe God has something. I started, and I started to just rejoice and thank God. And you know what began to happen? Ideas about some of the other deals that I had in my, in my pipeline. And I started saying, oh, wait a minute, I can take that guy and I can rather send him to that lender. And, oh, I, I can, I, we, if maybe we can prove this and the, the underwriter can approve. I started getting ideas for all these deals in my pipeline. By the end of the day, I was fine. And I don't remember, it's been 20 some years since then. Oh yeah. How old are you? 17, it's been 17 years. You, you earthly people who measure things in earth years. To, to the Lord, a thousand years is a day. Anyways, 17 earth years, um, or whatever it's been. I, I, it's been a long time ago. I can't remember what happened that week. All I know is, here I am, I was fine. So that, that thing, in the kingdom, there is no worry but confident expectation. Um, displace worry with rooting yourself in your heart, in the love of God, and in uh, confidence in God. You displace worry by rooting your thoughts, rooting your heart in the reality that God loves me. You are more valuable than the sparrows. You're more valuable than the lilies of the field. He, Jesus said that to us for a reason. He wants us to be rooted in the reality that I am valued by my Father. He loves me. He loves me enough to put the price of the blood of Jesus upon my head. He loves me. He cares for me. And there is a reason for confident expectation in Him being with me to help me through anything. So verse 26, If you then are not able to do the least, then why are you anxious for the rest? What is Jesus talking about if you're not able to do the least? It's that thing that he just said about adding one cubit to your stature. How many of you are able to force yourself to get taller? I heard of Michael Jordan apparently like hung from like something to try to stretch his body and get taller. I've heard rumors about that. I don't know if that's true or whatever, but I do know this. There's something called DNA in genetic code, and that determines how tall you're going to be. There ain't nothing that you can do, I guess, other than malnutrition to, to, to stop that. You got the height that you got, this tree of a boy that I have, uh, he, got, he got the height that he got without trying at all, right? It just kind of happens. So Jesus is saying, if you can't do that, then why do you care about all the rest of the stuff? What you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, all that kind of stuff. We could add into that what people are going to think of you or whatever other thing that we find ourselves worrying about. The idea Jesus is saying is in the kingdom, this stuff just happens. Your needs being met. It just happens. You don't have to make it happen. Most of us get it wrong, not because we're evil and we don't want to serve God and we're just wanting to live in sin. We don't trust Him. And when we don't trust Him, how much more will He clothe you, O of you of little faith? Jesus in here, if, if I could understand it correctly, it sounds to me like Jesus is pleading for us to accept 
that God has a plan, and that plan includes the meeting of our needs. So we don't seek our provision, we seek God's will, which includes our provision. We don't seek provision, we seek God's will, and that includes our provision. We don't seek provision, we seek God's will, and His will includes provision. In, in 2008, we, Minda and I were at another, well, you know, we didn't understand it at the time, but the whole world was about to go under a heap of a mess called the economic meltdown, the mortgage subprime lending crisis, and et cetera. We didn't see the big picture at that time, but, but uh, I did know that all of the lenders I had been working with started caving one by one, and uh, within a few months, I was no longer practicing mortgage financing. I had recently been ordained, brought into full-time pastoral role um, in the church that we were part of, but it was a insufficient income to cover all of our family's needs. And so we were in a, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a thing, <laughs> a thing. We pray and we start to feel stirred to take a mission trip to South Africa. When you are in a moment of financial tightness, spending thousands of dollars that you don't have to go on a mission trip, and do another continent does not make sense. And yet we just felt in our spirit. And I was not thinking we're wanting to move to South Africa. I was literally thinking we're going there to put our feet on the ground because we feel like South Africa has something to do with our future and we want to start to sow into it. (laughs) So what I'm trying to say to you is that we did not have our needs met at the home base. And when we seek the kingdom, God says, I want you to somehow with the funds that you don't have go on a mission trip to south africa we discussed it with the rest of the eldership team there was agreement somehow some way i mean everybody was feeling the financial crunch in those years in in that time we raised the funds we find ourselves in south africa while there god speaks to me about moving to south africa and i i i hesitate to rejoice in this but i i would say it is interesting to me that little did i know I had no clue. We aren't even close to smart enough to even get all this macroeconomic stuff. God sends us to this other country that's largely insulated from the, from the economic meltdown during the whole time. that. So we, we leave in this place, and we're, it's like we're under a, an umbrella. We don't face any of the financial stuff that most of the rest of our nation, most of the rest of the Western world are going through. And then he sends us back to America right when we've kind of like rebounded. We could never have like orchestrated that. You know what I'm saying? So I'm speaking that to a group of people who all were in America. You know, I'm not, you know, if you were following God, you would have done what we did. But what I'm saying is you can't script these things. They make no sense. You know it's right, but it doesn't make sense when you're doing it. And then it makes loads of sense. Like you couldn't have, you're not even smart enough to script this thing on the back end when you look backwards at it. That's the way this stuff works. So we don't seek our provision. We seek God's will, and God's will includes our provision. The kingdom will defy the world systems, and yet it will accomplish what the world cannot. The kingdom will defy the world systems. It doesn't make any sense. And how many times have I made decisions, and I'm trying to explain to my family or whoever what I'm doing, and like it is like, what are you on? Why can't you just be a normal churchgoer? 
Why do you have to do this? Because Jesus isn't a normal churchgoer, and he doesn't raise up normal churchgoers. He raises up people who live in the kingdom while on this earth. And there, there is a natural price to pay for it, but it's, it is wonderful. There's nothing that will satisfy the human soul except from that. Verse 29, And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind for all these things, the nations of the world. Uh, that word nations being the same as Gentiles or nations. In other words, people who don't have a covenant with God. The nations, those people seek after, and your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. So instead of the burden of worry, anybody ever worried before in here? Instead of that, direct your energy to seeking the king's domain, to seeking his will, seeking what he's saying, regardless of whether it makes sense. Seek his will. And I'd like to ask ourselves, what do I worry about? What do I worry about? Be real. What do you worry about? What is your kind of button? What's your, that thing that sends you spinning into worry? And ask yourself this, what does it look like to instead be seeking the kingdom in that area? Instead of worrying to be seeking the kingdom? What does it look like to have a life where I reject worry and I instead just confidently seek my father's kingdom? Verse 32, do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And remember, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. It's the people who are poor in spirit, evidenced by seeking, that actually get and find the kingdom and receive it. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor mouth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we seek the kingdom rather than seeking our own provision, rather than seeking in this earth what makes sense to ourselves, we seek the kingdom, we are by doing that investing. Well, we really invest when we seek the kingdom, we find it, and we do what we see. That's where the investment is. If we invest there, that's where our heart is. That's where our treasure is. It leads to investment, um, investing our resources and our whole lives into the kingdom, but that's where our treasure is. And we want to live our life in this earth with our treasure being stored up in the kingdom, not here on this earth. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning and let yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding. That when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Surely I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them, so blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what the hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man... It's coming at an hour when you do not expect. And here Jesus begins to introduce the idea that disciples are awaiting some kind of a return. Now, I mean, most of you have been in church long enough where that's old news, you know, the return of the Lord. We have studied that and thought about it and talked about it and 
But, but to these guys, it was brand new. What's this thing about returning? Returning, at which point there will be some kind of a judgment and a reward or punishment. That's what Jesus is beginning to introduce, this concept here. And so the fourth idea is that the citizens of the kingdom live for the judgment of the king. This kingdom of God that's inside of you, it's dwelling inside of you, in that kingdom, the citizens of that kingdom are living for the judgment of the king. When I say judgment, I'm not talking about some shrewd person looking at you and in, 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 in critiquing everything. I'm talking about his opinion, his what he's happy with, what he's not happy with. Uh, you know, that dog that you hear crying out there. Sometimes I, he'll, he'll start barking out the window, and by now he, he knows that he's not really supposed to be doing that. And I'll, I'll be like, Stanley, and he'll look at me, and he'll like hop down. Because he cares about my opinion. You follow what I'm saying? Like, actually, this dog cares greatly about my opinion. He doesn't always obey it, but, he, but as a dog does oftentimes, he cares, especially the alpha. So, what I'm, what, so Jesus is the alpha. So let's be like that. Let's care about what he, what, he, what he says, his judgment, his opinion. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us, in other words, believers, or to all people? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his master will make ruler over his household, listen to this, to give them their portion of food in due season? Do you want to know how to be prepared for the Lord's return, whether you see the Lord return in this age or whether you die and you meet him like all one day will, how do we prepare best for that day? It's not just getting born again. It is doing what I just read, giving them his household their portion of food in due season, giving ourselves to tending to people, not doing the kingdom, because the kingdom of God inside of us, that's what it's doing, ultimately. That's what it's about. It's all about people. And what does that look like? It looks like helping the helpless, and it looks like helping all people to follow Jesus. Helping the helpless and helping everybody to follow Jesus. My heart towards every human that I come into contact with, I pray, is that I, in whatever way that I can, if at all possible, want to help them to follow Jesus, to know him and follow him. That's living this life, being busy, giving his household food in its due season. If the Lord comes back and finds a church busy with that, there is a reward. But if we're sitting around playing our stupid church religious games and political stuff and whatever else that we get sidetracked into, I'm not so sure. I'm not sure if that's a good investment of our, of our lives. Truly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. What's the point there? Reward. There's a reward. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and do not, and, and to eat and to drink and to be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. What's Jesus saying here? There's punishment. There's a reward for those who seek the kingdom and live in that. And there's also punishment for a life that's void of seeking it, where we just seek our own thing. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. What, 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 what is that kind of describing? That's a person who's seeking and maybe finding the kingdom, but not taking any action. So you know something, but you don't do it. 
there's going to be a punishment for that. Punishment is proportional to what we know. But he did, but verse 48, but he who did not know and yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask for more. And the last thing that we just want to end off here is that the kingdom, and thank you for uh, a little bit of a longer one today. The kingdom exists on earth through its citizens, not through society. The kingdom exists on earth through, through its citizens, not secular society. Verse 49, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish I, it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished, speaking of his own death. Verse 51, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? Listen to that. Did, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, some of you may remember the Christmas, the Christmas verse. In two, two months, we're going to be singing this verse. That peace, uh, a glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. That was the declaration of the angelic host when Jesus arrives on the scene. Peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And, and here's Jesus saying, do you, think, do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? Not at all, um, I, uh, but division. Well, how can these two things be? I mean, this isn't even like in two separate gospels. This is in the same gospel, Luke 2 and Luke 12. Ten chapters later, are you tracking? How can these be? Because the peace that Jesus, that the, the host of heaven were, were, were proclaiming, on earth goodwill and peace towards men is through Jesus. And those who are recipients of him and his kingdom, they receive the Father's goodwill and the peace of the kingdom of God inside of them. One day we'll have a church that doesn't have a dog walking through it. You like it, but uh, try preaching with it. No, thanks. Yeah, I'm going to seek the kingdom. Yeah, that's uh, no. I'm going to seek the kingdom and see what the Lord says about this. Uh, the idea that Jesus is saying here is that it's the recipients of the kingdom, not not secular society, that are receiving goodwill and peace. Why is that important? Do you know that Jesus? Why is that important? Because we oftentimes are trying to change the darkness. We're trying to change, trying to, trying to bring kingdom of God into the world. It only is received into people when they receive Jesus, the king of that kingdom. So it is futile for the church to be focused on trying to make better the world when in fact we need to show the world the one who can make them better and, and show them how to receive him. That is the call of God for the church. Jesus never once told his disciples, let's pray that Herod get out of power. Why? Because he didn't need Herod to be in power or out of power for his mission to be accomplished, which was getting the kingdom into people. Uh, the Apostle Paul taught a vision of a mature church, not a reformed society. 
And yet we're oftentimes talking about how the world and the society and the nation is going down this bad path. Well, yeah, this isn't the church. That's not the kingdom. I love it when we're walking in prosperity as a nation, but what if we, we, our nation never has been on the path of the kingdom, ever. Because a nation can't be born again. People get born again. And there's this idea, Rodney and I were actually talking about it the other day. As the church goes, so goes the nation. The church started in Israel about 35 AD, and by 70 AD, it was no longer a nation, with probably having had the most vibrant, powerful church in the history of the church in that nation. As the nation, as the church goes, so goes the nation. That's ridiculous. Israel folded as a nation, having had the most powerful church in it. It's not about changing the nation or secular society. It is about proclaiming a kingdom in secular society to call people out to the Lord. Ekklesia, the Greek word of what church means, and we should all know this. It simply means called out ones. Not trying to reform society or calling people to the Lord to dwell in society, but be called out living in society in the kingdom that is now within, inside of them. Now, does that have an impact on society? Absolutely, but it doesn't come by changing society. It comes by the kingdom of God changing people from the inside out. And... Uh, We'll just read these final verses and, 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 and just pray. And then he said also to his multitudes, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it is. When you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern the time? Yes, and why even... Of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, unless he drag you to the judge, and the judge deliver you over to the officer, and the officer throw you in the prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there until you have paid the very last mite.